Well, good morning, church. For, for those of you less familiar with me or for those of you who don't recognize me in my glasses, my name is Paul and I have the pleasure of serving as one of the pastors here. If you've been with us the past couple weeks, you know we're in the final week of a three-week series on our, one of our core values, community. We're considering the role of the church community in our lives. So two weeks ago, Pastor Chris, he talked in general about how God has designed us for community, to form and shape us and to give us a sense of identity and purpose. Community shapes how we live, how we view ourselves, and how we view others. Think of a community like your family or a community you identify with culturally. That community shaped practices and rhythms that you live out and embrace, and it has shaped the way you view the world and view yourself. So to better understand how a community might, might shape us and form us, well, let's talk about a community that many of us participate in. It's not a community with brothers and sisters and sons and daughters and mothers and fathers, but rather a community with suppliers and consumers. For the sake of our example, let's use the community that comprises your experience shopping at Walmart. Now, some of you don't shop at Walmart. It's not your cup of tea. You shop other places. Feel free to implement where you shop into this conversation. Maybe it's Aldi. Maybe it's Target. Maybe it's Trader Joe's. Maybe you've even gotten into one-click purchasing on Amazon. Amen. Others of you, you don't want to admit you shop at Walmart. There is too much anger or too much guilt or shame. May I remind you Christ died for such things. You can be free to admit you shop at Walmart. So, so how, how does the community that is Walmart shape us and form our view of self and form our view of others? Like I mentioned, within that community that is Walmart, there are suppliers. There, there, these people may farm. They may work in fields or factories. They may be people who transport goods. They may be people who stock the goods and store the goods. They may charge for the goods. In this community, there are also advertisers or promoters, people who appeal to your mind and your heart to purchase particular products. Your role in this community is that of the consumer. You use your money typically shopping for a good bargain because you want to use your resources well, and you buy the product and you consume the goods. In, our, in the community, in our experience in the community that is Walmart, we are formed into the perspective that others supply and promote and we consume. The view that we are consumers, it can shape how we view other things. Consider something like the church. The church should supply. Maybe even the church should promote. And we should consume. As someone who enters into the community, we should consume its teaching. We should consume the music. We should consume the programs of the church, their small groups or their youth ministry or their ministry to parents and married couples or singles or single parents. And like a wise consumer, if we don't like what the church is supplying, we look for a different church. 
with better programs or better teaching or better singing in small groups. I remember a conversation I had with a woman one day, and she made this connection. She said picking out a church was like picking out a grocery store. Like any good consumer, you have to find the one you like best. Now, the problem is the church doesn't really work this way. The church is not a business supplying goods, and Christians are not simply consumers. Last week, Pastor Chris made the argument, if you are a Christian, you need the church. God has designed the church to grow you, to to help you mature, to fill in what is lacking. You do need to get something from the church. But if you are a Christian, as you interact with the church, you're not reduced to someone who only gets Expanding on the passage Pastor Chris used last week, Ephesians chapter 4, rather than you needing the church, I want to make the argument the church needs you. And not like Walmart needs you for your money. The church needs something different. If you are a Christian, if you don't see yourself as necessary to the functioning and life and health of a church, something is wrong. You're not living the way God intended. So as we continue to better understand this core value of community, our big idea this morning is the church needs you. To unpack this big idea, we're going to examine it from three different angles found in Ephesians 4. The first two angles, they're a bit more foundational. And the third angle is a bit more practical. So angle number one, the church needs you. What's so special about you? What makes you necessary to the functioning and the life of the church? Angle number two, the church needs you. In this angle, the emphasis is on the church. What what is lacking in the church? Why does the church need you to become stronger? And angle number three, what the church needs you to do. In this angle, we talk about what you do. It gets a little more practical. What you do to help the church grow. So let's begin with the angle, the church needs you. If you have your Bibles with you, if you, if you like to follow along on your phone, open it up. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 7. So there, the Apostle Paul says this. But grace was given to each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. So immediately prior to this verse, in a section that we did not read this morning, the Apostle Paul, he emphasized the uniformity and unity of the church. He he says things like there is one baptism, one faith, and one body. He uses the term one to describe the unity of Christians no less than seven times. And then he transitions, perhaps recognizing a potential thought of his hearers, recognizing we're not all the same. In verse 7, he identifies the unique ministry of Christ to every Christian. Grace was given to each one. There are many ways Christians are united, but there are also ways God has given gifts and experiences, and cultural backgrounds that result in great diversity within the body. 
We don't all talk the same or love the same or serve the same. Paul is making the argument, if you are a Christian, you have been given grace in a unique way. Of course, this doesn't necessarily mean the church needs you. We better understand that as we continue, as we get to verses 11 and 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. So Paul says the church is to function like a body. He said this earlier in chapter 4, and he reiterates it here. There are leaders of the church, people serving in particular roles with particular gifts, but they are not to bear the entire weight of building up the body of Christ. They equip saints. This is a term used for all Christians, not super-Christians, to do the work of building up the church. So people who are in Christ, not just pastors, not just super-Christians who are functioning at a really high level in the church, not just gospel community leaders, all the saints are equipped to build up the body of Christ. Paul uses this language of body elsewhere in the New Testament to describe the church. His point, just like a physical body depends on all the parts working properly, the body that is the church, for its health, it depends on all the members being engaged and participating and being about the business of the body. When that is not the case, the body is unhealthy. It is incomplete. Now, why would, Paul, why would Paul need to make such a case? What is likely going on here, and is certainly going on where Paul uses this metaphor in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, is that Christians sometimes struggle to feel useless. To feel as though they are not needed or unnecessary to the health of the church. Just like if you were to stop shopping at Walmart, they may miss your money but they won't really miss you. Your participation is not all that important. So listen into what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? Some of you do not recognize how integral you are to the functioning of the church. You have far too low a view of yourself. As a result, maybe you are less physically present than you should be, feeling like the body doesn't notice when you're absent on Sunday mornings or not investing in relationships in smaller places. Or maybe if you are physically present, you carry a low sense of self-worth and you are not actually engaged. If you were, people would experience you much differently. 
When you think about your church, you see how others are gifted and wired, and you believe the church needs them, but the church does not need you. Maybe you're too old, or I want to look at the, the teens and the young, person, the young people in the room. Maybe you think you're too young. Maybe you're not wired to talk about theology enough. Maybe you don't like to talk about relational health in the Enneagram. Or maybe now everyone in the church, even Pastor Chris has a dog and you don't have a dog. And so you feel left out. Others are a good fit for the body. They are necessary, but that is not you. Paul challenges such a conclusion. In a sense, he wants Christians to have a higher view of themselves and understand they are integral. You're not like everyone else. God has given you grace in a unique way, and because of that, you are necessary. The church needs you. Now, this higher view of self, it is certainly not prideful or haughty. The you the church needs is not the you that believes you have accomplished something great or the you that has achieved unique status or the you that is special in and of yourself. The you the church needs is the you that sees how God has been gracious to you and to your church, uh, arranging the body so that you are integral. We skipped over verses 8 through 10 for the sake of time. We won't read them now. But essentially, Paul goes off on this parenthetical statement. He is excited. For the sake of the church, people are not gifted through achievement, but rather because Christ came down to earth to set the church free. He has exercised authority over power and sins and idols and set sinners free from such things. And as he ascended to heaven... He has given spiritual gifts to the church for the sake of the church, that he might fill all things. The you the church needs is the you that recognizes how you've been gifted by Christ to fill all things. Do you have this view of yourself? Or do you view yourself as unnecessary? The reality is, holding this view that you are unnecessary You're not simply holding a low view of self. There is a fundamental lack of of trust in God holding on to such a disposition. Listen to John Piper. If we say we are useless, we not only say no to the idea of the body, but worse, we say no to God. We don't trust him. To say that you are useless is to say that God is weak or mistaken or evil. He is not sovereign, not wise, or not good. Like all issues, it comes down to a radically God-focused issue. Do you trust God? The church needs you. Do you believe God has arranged the church, the people of God, in a way you are needed? I am burdened for the Christian here this morning that believes he or she is not needed, that the health of the church does not depend on you. I want you to have this view of yourself. I want you to know and feel that you are integral to have this truth define you. You are far more important than you think. The church needs you. This brings us to angle number two. The church needs you. What is it about the church 
that makes it need all Christians, including you? What is lacking? Let's return to chapter 4 of Ephesians. Paul says, To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So if the first angle focuses on Christians needing to form how they view themselves, this second angle focuses on how Christians are to view the church. If we return to the anatomy of the physical body, the first perspective examines the extraordinary organ or part of the body and how it functioning is necessary for the body to be healthy. This second perspective, it examines the body and how frail and weak it can become when all its organs are or parts aren't functioning properly. Paul is saying, absent of all Christians in the church body doing their part, just like a physical body is dependent on its parts, so is the church. When all the parts aren't working, the church is prone to become diseased or prone to break down. When it needs to defend itself, it is weak and the church will be damaged. Paul is calling Christians here to think less about the individual you and even less about your part of the body and more about the whole body. I think one of the reasons non-Christians have so much trouble with the church is because they don't see people functioning as part of the church community. They see people living for themselves. They are self-absorbed. We live as consumers. We neglect caring about the broader church. If you're a Christian, you are called to think about more than your personal health. You're called to think about the health of your church community. If you're functioning as the leader of a gospel community, you are called more than thinking about the health of your gospel community. You're called to think about the health of the whole church body. If you're leading production or serving as a leader in First City Kids, you're called to think about more than the health of the group you serve with. You're called to think about the health of the entire church. I was reading a book recently that provided details on one of the deadliest heat waves in U.S. history. In Chicago in the 1990s, the temperatures were in the triple digits for several days, and there was no wind. Many people didn't have air conditioning, and those that did, they ran their units so heavy, the power grid collapsed, leaving many without electricity. Over the course of this heat wave, many people experienced dehydration, overheating, even death. Because this event took a significant economic toll, and ultimately 739 deaths were connected to it, Researchers traveled to Chicago to learn how to prepare for future, future heat waves. They wanted to learn who was at most risk. Of course, they found the people more at, more at risk were the elderly, they were the, the people with disease, they were the people who didn't have caregivers or lacked access to transportation. But, but the researchers also found something surprising, that the people who were most at risk didn't simply die in regions of the city with a particular socioeconomic class 
or a particular racial class or a region of the city that was more prone to violence. Listen to how the author describes the words of sociologist Eric Kleinberg. The crucial variable Kleinberg discovered was social relationships. In neighborhoods that fared well during the heat wave, residents knew who was alone, who was old, and who was sick. And they took it upon themselves to do wellness checks. They encouraged neighbors to knock on each other's doors, not because the heat wave was so exceptional, but because that's what they always do. By contrast, areas with high death tolls were areas that previously had been abandoned by businesses, service providers, and most residents. Only the unconnected remained. They died alone because they lived alone. Isolation turned something dangerous into something deadly, end quote. Each neighborhood or community in Chicago was prone to experience the devastating effects of a heat, heat wave. Many regions had people with diseases and people who were weak, but the communities that thrived were the communities where people knew they were needed. This was not a situation that played out in crisis, but every day they knew they were needed. They knew the weaknesses of that community, and they cared and they supported. A church community, in a sense, it is weak. It is fragile. It can break down. So a very practical implication of this, do you know the weaknesses of your church? Not so, not so you can complain or grumble, but so you can fill the need. Too many of us, we are too focused on self to think about such things. We are self-absorbed and self-protective and selfish. The business of caring for the church, well, that's someone else's job. The Apostle Paul says something different. The church needs all the saints to be about the business of caring for it and building it up. When that doesn't happen, when you function out of a belief that you are useless or when you're focused on self, it is not just you who suffers. It is the whole church. So let's talk about First City Church for a minute. Some have experienced the loss of loved ones in recent years. Parents close siblings. Some have experienced devastating effects of divorce. Some wake up in physical pain every day as their bodies are experiencing the effects of living in a fallen world. Some experience emotional pain, struggling with anxiety or depression, dealing with the effects of broken relationships, or maybe they're in a season of suffering. Some are addicts, addicted to pleasure and whatever produces escape. Many of you recognize you're in one of these categories of need, how you lack health, how you need the church to minister to you. But do you recognize all those needs I just described? Do you see yourself as the person that, be, that may be uniquely equipped to meet that need? You may be the person to pray with a hurting friend. You may be the person to grab a cup of coffee with a sister who needs to be reminded of how she is forgiven in Christ and how she is loved by Christ. You may be the person to send a message of encouragement in a moment of weakness or despair. There is a need in the church 
that you are uniquely gifted to address. That need has your name on it. Which brings us to angle number three. What the church needs you to do. I want to spend a few moments talking about this. As Paul continues to write, he describes how the body grows, how the body becomes strong, and how the body defends itself. Verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, properly, makes the body so that it builds itself up in love. Speaking the truth in love. It is sometimes referred to as the ministry of the word. It's kind of simple, kind of. At our deepest level, Christians don't need others serving us. We don't need others supporting us. We don't need others sympathizing with us. We don't need others crying with us. More than that, we need the word of God spoken over us. And we need to speak the word of God over others. The book of Hebrews says it this way, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The church, the people in the church, to ensure we grow. We need others to speak the truth in love to us. And we need to speak the truth in love to others. To grow in maturity, to avoid having hearts hardened by sin, this is what the ministry of the word does. I believe I've, I've shared with you all previously that one of the pastors I, I learn from often is a pastor on the West Coast named Jeff Vanderselt. And to illustrate the importance of speaking the truth in love, I want to share a story. I think I've shared it with a few of you in the past. During a weekly community gathering, he mistreated his wife in front of everyone. I think he raised his voice or something like that. He was unkind and rude. And so the next week, during the weekly gathering, he says with great humility and brokenness, I have something I need to share. I need you to know I apologize to my wife for how I treated her last week. And I want to apologize to you. A husband shouldn't treat his wife that way. The community extended forgiveness, of course, understanding the forgiveness that has been extended to them in Christ. Then he asked a question. Why didn't any of you say anything to me? You all saw how I mistreated my wife and none of you said anything. You all know that's not how a husband loves his wife, but none of you reached out to me. What was he doing? Well, he was pointing out a failed opportunity to speak the truth in love. In him doing this, what did he do? Well, he risked hurting someone else's feelings for sure. He risked not being liked. Speaking the truth in love will sometimes mean that is the case. Rather than being concerned about that, he was more concerned about the building up of the body. He didn't want the church body to become stagnant and not grow. Speaking the truth in love, it affirms we love God, 
It affirms we love biblical truth. It, it affirms we love God's people and want to see them thrive. Now, I know the phrase, speaking the truth in love, it can be loaded. Some of you, hearing this phrase, it, it causes your heart to flutter. Maybe you have misconceptions about what it means. Maybe you have been hurt by others who perhaps misapplied the phrase, calling a spade a spade, telling it like it is, calling out someone else's sin, depending on how it is done, can be very inconsistent with what Paul is getting at. Speaking the truth in love is not speaking the truth in arrogance or speaking the truth in anger or speaking the truth in frustration. Speaking the truth in love It requires great humility. To do it, the truth of Scripture needs to be forming your head and your heart. And to do it, you need to be spending time with people to know how to love them. Listen to authors Tim Chester and Steve Timmis. If you do not pastor people, And this is not the pastoring that only pastors do. The authors are referring to the ways we speak truth to each other. If you do not pastor people out of a strong sense of God's grace, both to you and to them, then you will leave them feeling condemned. But there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you leave people feeling condemned, then something has gone horribly wrong in your pastoral care. Self-righteous people make bad pastors. At best, they create legalists in their own image. At worst, they leave people crushed. This means we should allow people to respond honestly and negatively to our pastoral input. We should always speak as fellow sinners, pointing to our Savior rather than to our way of life or our moral code. We should be ready for mess and indeed welcome it. Scary statement. Welcome the mess. Now, I don't want you to be paralyzed about making sure you speak the truth in love exactly right. The church needs us to be less self-absorbed, but by definition, we must do it with great humility at a head level and a heart level. That's what the church needs, is for you to speak the truth in love. So how do you do this? How do you speak the truth in love to others at First City Church? How do we live out the reality that church needs me? Let me say, this cannot typically be done passing one another as we walk to our seats on Sunday mornings or greeting one another during the welcome time. At least you shouldn't do it that way. Right. To grow in speaking the truth in love, you must get into different contexts of community. So as we conclude, let me, let me get very practical and give you a few ways you could grow speaking the truth in love in the next six months. One, set a goal to grab coffee or eat dinner once a month with a brother or sister or another couple in the church. Ask them how they're doing. Listen to them. What, what are they struggling with? In what ways do they need to grow? Some of you assume people are gathering with other people while you're sitting at home in your living room. Most of them are not. Reach out. Pray with them. Read the Bible with them. Send them text messages filled with and connected to Scripture. Two, engage in a gospel community. 
Don't simply attend. Engage in one. If you need to get connected, see me afterwards, and I would love to help you get plugged in. A gospel community is a group of people that expresses they need to grow as disciples of Jesus. In that community, engage in conversation. Engage in relationship. Engage in praying for other individuals. And three, intentionally pursue growing in your ability to speak the truth in love. Pursue mentorship from a gospel community leader. Ask them to meet with you to study the word of God or to study an area of weakness. Seek out some time with Pastor Chris or myself. We often say we're open to grabbing coffee or lunch, but rarely do people take us up on that. If you're a woman, jump into the Bible study that starts this week. To speak the truth in love, we must be growing in our knowledge of the truth. And this means placing ourselves in contexts where we grow in knowing biblical truth. As we conclude, let me say this. I am burdened for us. I'm burdened for you, Christian. I I want you to understand how integral you are to the life of the church. And in particular, to the life of the church you are a part of. The church, it needs you. But may we only have that perspective as we consider what Christ has done for us. God has not given us this view so that we would be crushed by expectations or crushed by our faults and failures in living this out. This passage shows us, despite our faults and failures, God has gifted us, each of us, each one of us, in unique ways to minister to his church. The church needs you.